Good morning, everybody. Wow. I never get like a response. That was awesome. Uh, anybody out there old enough to remember the 1985 Chicago Bears? Right? Um, we're all dating ourselves. I mean, I was like two. My father told me about them. But that was quite a group, right? Uh, Mike Ditka, Walter Payton, Jim McMahon, Mike Singletary, Richard Dent. I mean, you could go on and on, right? And who can forget William the Refrigerator Perry, right? All of them also doing the Super Bowl shuffle, so I'm really dating myself now. I came across a story about the, uh, the 85 Bears I wanted to share with you. Here, here's how it's written. One day, Ditka was about to deliver a, a locker room pep talk, and he looked up and he saw William, the refrigerator, Perry. And again, how could you not see the fridge? At 338 pounds, he stood out even in a crowd of pro football players. And so Ditka sees him standing there, and he gestures to the fridge and goes, when I get finished, I'd like you to close with the Lord's Prayer. And so then Ditka began his talk. Meanwhile, Jim McMahon, if you remember McMahon, McMahon was one of the true characters of all time. He was the quarterback. Jim McMahon, the brash and outspoken quarterback, he punches the guy sitting next to him, John Cassis, and whispered, look at Perry. He doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. Well, sure enough, Perry sat with a look of panic on his face and his head in his hands, sweating profusely. Cassis replied, no, no way, sure he does. He's just nervous. Everybody knows the Lord's Prayer. And so after a few minutes of watching the refrigerator leak several gallons of sweat, McMahon nudged Cassis again and said, I'll bet you 50 bucks Fridge doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. And so when Ditka finished his pep talk, he asked all the men to remove their caps, and he nodded at Perry and bowed his head. The room was quiet for a few moments before the Fridge began to speak in a shaky voice and said, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Cassis felt a tap on his shoulder. It was Jim McMahon, who whispered to him, you win, here's the $50. I had no idea Perry knew the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> True story, apparently. Welcome to week two of um, what we're calling Gumball God. It is like a two-week little mini-series here, born of exactly the heart of that prior story. The underlying pre premise is simple. For the most part, According to Jesus and, and those closest to him, we don't know how to pray. I mean, it's interesting, right? That you have to take a, a test for college admission. You have to take a test for driving. And so what do you do, right? You, you study, you learn, you get tutoring and counseling and instruction. Many of our kids, right, they take lessons and all these things. But when it comes to things, especially big things, I would actually argue the biggest things, things like marriage, parenting, no test, no lesson, no lesson, no, no class. We just assume if we get married, we know how to be married. That's not true. Can I get an amen? <laughs> that if we have kids, we know how to raise kids. I have four. Not true. I could tell you from half a lifetime in ministry, those things are not true. And the same principle is at work in what we often deem our prayer lives. We think we know how to pray, but truthfully, according to Jesus and his disciples, it's not likely true. For most of us, our preparation ended where the, fridge, the fridges did. Now I lay me down to sleep. And so I, last week, I, I began the series. I, I shared my, my convictions regarding prayer. They came as a result of, of the Lord miraculous healing my dad a few months ago. 
from a, a near-fatal heart attack. And as I prayed and thanked God for answering my prayers and healing my dad, a little question formed in my spirit. And it was this, well, what happens the next time, John? What happens when God doesn't heal? Because eventually he's not going to. We all know that, right? I mean, am I still going to be thankful? Oh, thank you, Lord, that you didn't answer my prayer and my father died. Am I, am I still going to praise God in the midst of that storm? And, and then that got me going down like the treadmill of thought and doubt, which I think doubt has a way of getting us on the treadmill. It got me thinking about what many in Christian circles call my prayer life. And as I began to think about it, my prayer life, I was being convicted that it was often more, uh, it was more prayer list than life. The vast majority of my time with God was spent with, with me asking God for things, to do things, to come through for me or for other people. And, and just truthfully, if prayer was supposed to actually accomplish those things, if prayer was supposed to be answered by me getting what, what I want or by them getting what they want, I mean, if I'm just being honest, the majority of times it didn't seem to be working. Like I prayed and nothing happened. And as I said last week, the visual that kept coming to my mind was that I had begun to use God, and this is God, the author of all life and existence, as if he was merely a gumball machine. And prayer had been reduced to, and I kept saying it last week, trying to figure out how to get this thing to work. How do I get the prize to drop? How do I get the gumball out of it? What do I have to do to get what it is that I want, right? I mean, is it the coin? I mean, I, I hope that this thing's going to take a, a penny. I mean, I'll start with a penny because, you know, I really don't want to have to give a quarter to get what it is I need. And because I'm cheap, that's why I bought this gumball machine. Alex, first time in church. Here you go, buddy. Nothing, nothing like shouting out a visitor. <laughs> but he got gum out of it, right? And right, so my thought is, I'd, I'd rather not put a quarter in if I can get it to work for a lot less. Is there some other kind of thing you need to do to get the gumball to drop? Is there a certain way this thing works? Like, is it if I, if I just, you know, do you, you, ever, you ever find the machine like at, at work in the brake stations? I don't think they have those anymore. But every once in a while, you'd find the machine that, like, if you hit, hit the button the right way, you didn't have to put the coin in, it would just drop, right? Not that I did that, but I saw other people doing it. <laughs> and so, like, if I just get this handle right, if I jiggle it the right way, that's what it is. It's about, it's about what I say and how often I say it. Like, when the prayer goes unanswered and the prize seems to be stuck, is there something I can do to jiggle this thing loose? How do I get this thing to work? My guess is that I hope that many of you are not all that different from me. Right? Like, think about when you pray. Is it mostly just prayer lists? And I mean, just be honest, is it working? If that's true of you, and, and it is of me often, unfortunately, too many times, that actually puts us in pretty good company because we wind up being in the same company as those men that were closest to Jesus, that realized something about themselves and their prayers. 
I mean, these guys walked with Jesus every day for several years. And during those years, one thing became very, very apparent to them. The first was that Jesus spent a lot of time praying. Like, he was always going off and, and getting by, by himself and praying. You can see it all over the, the, the four Gospels. And if what Jesus was doing when he went off to do this was actually called prayer, then what they were doing, it appeared to them, or suddenly they realized, what they were doing was very different. In fact, maybe it was entirely wrong. Maybe they didn't know how to pray. Which led them on one occasion to this very moment. One day, Jesus was doing what he often did. He was praying at a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, I don't know what that was, but teach us to pray. And this was on one occasion, and there was another. Jesus just did that. Now think for a moment about what we're talking about here. Jesus, the Son of God, the only man so far to accurately, accurately predict his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and three days later his resurrection. That Jesus, the acclaimed, self-acclaimed Son of God, proven by what he did, that Jesus is going to teach you how to pray. And what we began to discover last week is if you listen to what he's teaching, it's very different than what you've likely been doing. And, and of course it is, right? And so what's so just Jesus about this is when he starts to teach him about how to pray, he actually starts with how not to. And, and what I want you to see, I want you to remember this opening line because you're actually going to see it's embedded in the whole prayer. Jesus starts with this. He goes, okay, you want to know how to pray? When you pray... Do not be like, and I want you to say this with me. Do not be like the hypocrites. Can you put that in your mind for a little bit? Don't be like the hypocrites when you pray. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I'm telling you, they've received their reward in full. Don't be like the hypocrites. The Greek in which Matthew wrote this, right, it, it, the word hypocrite there means actors on a stage. Don't be actors on a stage. Don't be a bunch of phonies. Don't pretend. Now, here's the super key thing I need you to remember as we look at this. Hypocrites, pretenders, they don't get their prayers answered. There's no reward for, uh, for hypocrites in prayer. Now, that might lead you to, to, to say, well, what kind of prayer does get answered? How do I get this thing to work? Well, Jesus tells him. He says, but when you pray, you go into your room, you close the door, and you pray to your father who's unseen, and then your father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Now, last time we went into this at quite some detail last week, but here's suffice for now. What Jesus is saying is that there really is a time and a place for prayer. And it's not ideally when you're driving to work or showering. Not that those prayers don't matter. Prayer at its best is a constant conversation with God. But prayers that get answered, that get rewards, seem to demand something more. This kind of set-apartness is required, of, of aloneness, of quiet, of focus. Now, if just Jesus ended right there, you might think that he actually gave you the secret to the gumball machine, to getting the prize to drop. Okay, if I want to get my prayers answered, if I want to get this thing to do what I want it to do, Jesus just told me the secret sauce. Get alone, close the door, address God as Father, and the gumball drops. And that might be true if he had stopped there, but he didn't. 
And what we realize as he goes on is that this whole posture that he's giving us about, about getting alone, right, and getting quiet, it's going to be required in order to continue on in the prayer. In fact, he actually debunks the how do I get this whole thing to work formulaic type of thinking with his next line. He goes, look, when you guys pray, don't keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they're going to be heard because of their many words. In other words, as opposed to most of the prayer memes on Facebook, right? After, after this couple of weeks, I hope you'll see these and, and almost laugh. There is no formulaic way to get God to perform. There is no way to get this thing to do what it is that you want him to do. It's, it's, it's not some amount of words. It's not saying something a certain way or amount of times. It's not reposting or responding in the comments with amen. I, to our online audience, no need to respond amen. Unless you want to encourage the pastor, of course. <laughs> that's how pathetic I am. I beg for it up here. Look, that's not how it works, right? To which, look, if you're just honest, you might respond, well, that's what I was taught. I was taught that if I said it this many times and directed it to this person or this saint, then I'd get that. Jesus has gone, no, 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 it's not about any of those things. And so if you're confused now, remember from last week, here's the even more confusing line. Don't be like them, people that do that, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Which, of course, would have blown the mind of the disciples because they prayed a lot like we prayed. Just as much as it blows our mind. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus, prayer isn't about bringing our list of things that we need and we want to God? To which many of us would say, if that's not the point of prayer, right, and God already knows what I need, then why would I pray? Why would I bother? What's the entire point? I thought that was the point. I mean, right, if we're honest, right, I mean, is not our prayer mostly about us bringing to God our wants and our needs? If we eliminated bringing to God, and I'm not saying that we should because the scriptures are clear, cast all of your cares upon Jesus, right? Bring all of these things to God in prayer. But if, if that was what it was primarily, if we were to take that portion out because it's not primarily about that, how much would be left of our prayer life? Dear God, amen. Right? It's not that he's not interested. Clearly it is. It's just that that's not the primary purpose. Because I want to just remind you again, God already knows what you need. He already knows what you want. Of course he does. Breaking news, he's God. I mean, he knows the number of hairs on your head. Of course he knows the concerns of your heart. So Jesus continues. This then, since God already knows, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, I can't rehash all that we went through last week, but he does not start with, remember, my Father, which is how we pray. He starts with our Father. Jesus is reminding us that prayer is not essentially about me and my wants and my needs, but, it, but it's important that you get this, that God has other sons and daughters in this world who have competing wants and competing needs with yours. The first word, our, not mine, and then there's the other key posture point here. Hallowed, holy, glorious, mighty, weighty is your name. It's a reminder, right, before we continue on, that although we are encouraged and invited to come to God intimately as a perfect father, that's the best way to see him, please don't brush by it without realizing how all-powerful it is to whom you speak. 
This is the good, completely right, holy, perfect, almighty God of all creation. And you need this posture. You need to get yourself here. This is why it's hard to do this on Route 80 and in the shower. You need to get yourself to this place because when you get there, then you start to understand the purpose of prayer, what it's all about. Because it's not primarily about me bringing my wants and needs to God. Then what is it about? Jesus answers it. He goes, here's what you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, this is the prayer version of Jesus' teaching that he taught all over. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then these things will be added to you. See, it's after hallowing and understanding that he already knows what you need. It's really about trying to align what I want with what he wants. We've thought that it was really about trying to get him to give us what it is we want. It's not about bending God's will to mine. It's about abandoning mine to his. Christians often talk about accepting Jesus or surrendering to Christ. That's this in action. Not my will, your will. It's not about changing God, it's about changing me. We looked at it last week, and we'll look at it again as we move towards Easter in a couple of weeks. So many of us think that that last night, the night Jesus was arrested, last supper is over, he goes off to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. So many of us think that Jesus spent the night wrestling with God, trying to get God to change his mind about this whole crucifixion thing. But we actually leave out that Jesus spent the night going, not my will, but your will. Not my will, but your will. It took everything he had to bend his fully human, fully God nature to the will of the fathers. This is the primary purpose of prayer. Now, again, it doesn't end here. It builds. This whole prayer just keeps building under these concepts. So having come to this place of surrender in our will to God's will, Jesus continues. Give us today, and you might stop there and think, oh, well, finally, he's finally caught, caught up with me. Now it's going to become about me. Give us today my gumball, my will, my thoughts, right? Here comes the gumball. It's my turn now. See, this is actually usually where we start our prayers, if we're honest, right? This is where we pick up. Not with thy will, right? Uh, we start with my will. Jesus starts with surrender. And with that in mind, he says, give us today our daily bread. Jesus is not so, so much telling us to pray for stuff. And I think a lot of times we read this and go, okay, God, we're supposed to be, this is where we pray for our stuff. What I actually think he's trying to do, if you understand the whole of the, the prayer, he's trying to remind us that we are dependent on God for everything, and it's difficult for us to really understand, especially in the 21st century. I mean, come on now, let's be honest. Most of us have never wanted for daily bread. Most of us have more than our daily bread. In fact, here's the truth, right? Most of us are on some kind of diet to limit the amount of daily bread that we currently consume, right? Like, it's hard for us to understand this prayer when we're, you know, we're throwing out our daily bread on a regular basis. But the pandemic did do a good job for a, a couple of weeks of reminding us of the fragility of our excess. You remember these pictures? Remember that? I mean, usually it was the toilet paper section, right? But do you remember when it, what it was like in 2020, that feeling of, uh-oh, like this whole thing seems like it's about to spin out of control. I didn't like that feeling. 
I know I, I didn't because I like control. And so Jesus is reminding us that God, he's reminding us to remind ourselves that God is control in control of everything. Don't try to wrestle it from him, but rest in his provision. And to do that, Jesus harkens back to this famous story in the history of his people, the Exodus, when God led the Israelites out of Egypt and into the desert where they had nothing to eat. But every day, God miraculously would provide this manna, this daily bread would appear on the ground, and every morning they were allowed to go out and they could take just enough for today. If they took too much, many of you know, it would spoil because God was teaching his people dependence. You need to trust me. I will provide for you. Depend on me. Depend on me. Do not hoard this up because you'll begin to depend on yourself. God's teaching his people dependence. The wording here, daily bread, it would have been familiar with the disciples. It wasn't the first time it was said. They would have remembered the teaching in the Proverbs. And I'm telling you, this is one of my favorite verses in all of the scripture. If you, if you hang around with me, you know I, I talk about this one a lot. The writer of Proverbs, this ancient book of wisdom, right in the middle of your Bible, he goes, there's two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. These are his two dying wishes. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only, say it with me, my daily bread. Why? Because otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and dishonor the name of my God. Hallowed be thy name. We don't want to do that. I mean, honestly, right? Have you ever prayed, has anybody ever prayed, Lord, I really need you to not give me anything more? I'm begging you, God, no more money. I have achieved enough. I mean, the irony between what Jesus is telling us to pray and what we pray is, is breathtaking, right? I mean, most of our prayers, I mean, they're about more, about getting enough or having enough to regain control over our lives so we don't have to worry about tomorrow because we think we've got it in our own hands. What if when Jesus taught us to pray for daily bread, he was not saying, now give God your prayer requests for what you want, but instead he's teaching us to ask God to keep us in a state, and this is the prayer, God, keep me in a state of utter dependence on you. Don't give me more, God, don't give me more than my daily bread, because it's dangerous. Many of you know the story of the rich young ruler, right? He comes to Jesus at night, and he wants to inherit eternal life. And Jesus challenged him to leave everything and to follow him. To, in a very real sense, surrender to Jesus' will, to be to totally dependent on God, to fully rely on him, let go of the control of his life. And you remember what Luke recorded happened? He said that when the rich young ruler heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because God hates rich people? No. It's just really hard for rich people to live surrendered, dependent lives on God. We, because by world standards, this is all of us, we usually forget about them. Now, you might not like this. But in men in New Jersey, our prayer might not be for more. Our prayer should probably be for less, 
for two reasons. I'll give you two really good reasons. First, the first is that with all our stuff, we wind up forgetting about God. We, we don't surrender to his power. We build up our own little kingdoms. But the second, how about this? This is true. In this world, you know there is more than enough stuff for everyone. There is enough food produced today to feed everybody on this planet. Yet, hunger is on the rise. And in many parts of the world, 821 million people are considered to be chronically undernourished. According to the world's largest food company, if the rest of the world ate like Americans, the planet would have run out of fresh water 15 years ago. Now, I want to hearken you back. Remember, I told you to remember this. I want to hearken you back to how Jesus started the prayer. Remember when he said, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be an actor on a stage. Don't be a phony. It's funny. This part of the prayer actually reminds me of Jeff Foxworthy. You know Jeff Foxworthy and his redneck jokes? You know any of these? If you've been on television more than five times describing what the tornado looked like, you might be a redneck. If you ever cut your grass and found a car, you might be a redneck. How about this, though? If you've ever prayed for more than your daily bread but refused to give others theirs, you might be a hypocrite. And hypocrites' prayers don't get answered. Give us today our daily bread. It's not an invitation for us to ask for more. It's a reminder of our dependence on God and our duty to others. We should pray, in a sense, to give it away. But he's not done. We might want him to be, but he's not done. And forgive us our debts. Now, if you've gotten any instruction from the church on prayer, and most of us got some growing up, this is the portion of prayer which most of us are familiar with, right? Most of us, on some regular basis, ask God to forgive us. We know it's just inherent in the human heart that we've fallen short, short of the divine standard of goodness and holiness. Heck, the, the whole daily bread thing just reminded us of that. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave it there. You might wish he did. And for, this is a conditional prayer. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus is saying that we should ask God to forgive us in the same way and only to the same extent to which we have forgiven others. Lord, I would like you to limit your forgiveness of me to the amount I've been willing to forgive those who've harmed me. Who's prayed that? Just like most of us have never prayed for less, most of us have never asked God to only forgive us to the extent we forgive other people. But that's why he frames us this way, to help us understand our need for forgiveness and our need to forgive. And in fact, Jesus, at the end of the prayer, this is such an important part of the prayer, the prayer actually comes to an end, and the next line is this. It's like Jesus feels the need to circle back. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, I know if you've been around the church, this is kind of confusing because foundational to what we believe, right, is the concept of grace that we're saved by, forgiven through the unmerited favor of God. It has nothing to do with us. Jesus paid the price for our sins. His, his, his work on our behalf, that's what saves us, not our works. There's nothing we can do on our own to save ourselves, and that is true. But it is not, this is not invalidating that. What Jesus is teaching is a concept that he actually taught often, 
Earlier, this, this prayer is in the Sermon on the Mount. Earlier in that same sermon, Jesus said, um, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus often spoke of this concept about good trees producing good fruit. If your life has been transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which dwells within believers when they come to faith, that spirit, that new life produces fruit, good fruit. John Piper described it this way, if the forgiveness we received at the cost of the blood of the Son of God is so ineffective in our hearts that we're bent on holding unforgiving grudges and bitterness, we're not good trees. We don't cherish God's forgiveness. We don't trust in this forgiveness. We don't embrace and treasure it. We are hypocrites. We're just mouthing it. We haven't ever felt the piercing, joyful wonder that God paid the life of his son. I mean, how in the world could I hold a grudge against somebody when I have not been offended nearly like God has been offended so highly that he had to pay the life of his own son in order for me to be forgiven? Jesus taught this often. Some of you know the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's this prayer in a story form. Jesus says that this servant owes the king like a billion dollars. It's just off the chart what he owes the king, and he gets forgiven freely. But he goes out, and he feels it so little. His forgiveness means so little to them that he strangles his fellow servant over $10. And when the king hears about it, he sends him to jail. And Jesus concludes the parable like this. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Remember that whole surrender thing? This whole thing is supposed to be a prayer from a heart of surrender. Thy will, not my will. Thy kingdom, not, not my kingdom. So, of course, just like I am, I've, I have a responsibility to spread the daily bread, just like I have a responsibility to spread the daily bread that has been given unto me. I have a responsibility to spread the forgiveness that I've enjoyed and experienced from God. You know, if your dad walks you to school because you're in the same grade, you might be a redneck. If every day somebody mistakenly comes to your door thinking you're having a yard sale, you might be a redneck. And if you pray for your forgiveness, but you withhold forgiveness from others, you might be a hypocrite. You might be an actor on a stage and actors' prayers don't get answered. And Jesus continues. We might not want him to, but he does. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, this part of the prayer can be a little bit confusing, right? The question often comes, well, wait a minute. Does God lead us into temptation? The answer to that is, based on the whole of Scripture, a resounding no. Jesus' brother James writes in his book, this letter he wrote to the churches, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what's going on? Well, the prayer is essentially that God would not permit or allow the enemy, the evil one, to tempt us towards sin. You see this in Jesus' own life, some of you that know Jesus' story. Right after he's baptized, he's led off into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. This is a prayer against that, against deception and temptation. Remember that night in the Garden of Gethsemane? The Last Supper is over. Judas has left and betrayed Jesus. He fell to temptation. Peter is on the, uh, the edge of about uh, denying Jesus. He's about to fall to temptation. And when Jesus gets to the Garden to pray, he, he, he stops and he looks at the disciples. And he says, 
you need to pray. And then he gives the reason, so you don't fall into temptation. What's the temptation? You don't fall to your own human will. You don't try to take control. You don't, you don't try to, to, to push the cup past yourself. He, he actually comes back out several times during that evening, and he keeps going back to the disciples and going, you need to pray because you're going to fall into temptation. You need to pray so you don't fall into temptation. How does prayer help one not fall into temptation? Because when we get alone, right, not on Route 80, right, when we get alone and we get quiet and we realize the intimacy of this relationship we've been given with God and how infinite and powerful he is, when we sit with that concept for as long as we need to so we can actually say and mean thy will and not my will, I swear to you temptation starts to fade away. What's at the root of our, our temptation? It's always the same thing. My will, not thy will. My kingdom, not thy kingdom. My control, not your control. I mean, this is the ironic part of the prayer. Do you know who leads me into more temptation, who gets me right up on the edge of temptation, often to the times, to the point where I fall? Do you know who does that to me? Me. I mean, who, who is responsible for you going down to the hotel bar and sitting down next to that woman or that guy? Who's responsible for piling up so much stuff, building bigger and bigger barns so you don't have to rely on God for anything? Who's responsible for hoarding all those things? Who's responsible for not doing the hard work necessary or the studying required so that you wind up looking at her work or taking credit for his? Who, who led you there? See, at its heart, temptation is the same issue. It's our lack of surrender, our desire for control of our own lives. We want to build our kingdoms. My kingdom, not thy kingdom. And this is why we're really good. We're really good. I mean, you know what the best part of, we're real, the, the part of this prayer we're best at? Asking to be forgiven. I mean, let's just be honest, right? If you were to count up how many times you've asked God to forgive you and compare it to, ask, to how many times you've asked him to lead you away from temptation, what would that balance be? Like five to one, 10 to one, 100 to one? Forgive me, I don't really want to talk about the temptation. Why? Because I've actually brought myself over here. See, the reason we do it is we don't think that the sin on the other side is all that serious. Ah, it's not going to be that big a deal. And when I sin, I'll just go back and ask God forgiveness anyway. I mean, wouldn't we all, see, some of you know this isn't right. Some of you have, have experienced. Wouldn't we all say that looking back, the greatest regrets we have, is there a regret in your life that came from following the will of God? Oh, I just wish I hadn't done what God wanted me to do there. I mean, all of them, right? All of them are when we give in to the temptation to build our own kingdoms. All of our, our greatest regrets are always my kingdom regrets. We lead ourselves, right, to these things. And then we go, well, I'll just ask God to forgive me later. You know God's not a fool, right? I mean, you can't be praying, God, lead me not in temptation, but you know that you're living in the edge of temptation. And you're going, well, yeah, but it's not really that serious. And, and if anything were to happen, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe if something were to happen, even then I, I would ask God to forgive me. Now, I don't know what kind of God you've made up in your mind, but that is not a hallowed be thy name God, right? My guess is that if you're living that way, you haven't spent enough time on the, the Father and hallowed part of the prayer. 
Now, I know we're all guilty to this to one extent or another. That's why Paul had to remind the Galatians of this. He goes, look, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. He's not saying God gives him what he deserves. He's saying, no, 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 no. Like, you're going to get what you reaped. Don't come back to God going, please, like, fix the mess I made. Right? You know, if you've ever, <laughs> if you've ever financed a tattoo, you might be a redneck. If you've ever made change in the offering plate, you might be a redneck. My personal favorite is, if you go to the family reunion to meet women, you might be a redneck. And if you pray for protection from temptation, but lead yourself into it regularly, because you think all you have to do is ask God to forgive you, you might be a hypocrite. You might be an actor on a stage, and friends, prayers of hypocrites do not get rewarded. And that's it. That's the end of Jesus' prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Boom. He didn't even throw an amen on it. If you're from a Catholic background, you might go, yeah, of course it is. If you're from a Protestant background, you go, whoa, 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 there's another piece. You forgot a piece. At least that's what the King James Version says anyway. And you would be right. The King James Version and others include what's known as the doxology. It's a, an add-on in verse 13. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In the early church, Christians living in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, they added the doxology for thine to this. And so when copying the scriptures, Greek scribes sometimes uh, uh, put the doxology onto the original text that was there. The earliest Greek manuscripts do not have that. Most texts today, the NIV, for example, omit this inclusion. It's either footnoted um, or there's a note there that just says this was added later. But what's actually super interesting about this doxology part, it's very similar to a David's prayer to God. David was Israel's great king, right? Their second king, and he, he led Israel into un, you know, never seen before years of prosperity. But it's also a man that while he was after God's own heart, fell into temptation. David wrote his prayer to God years and years before Jesus ever showed up on earth. But tell me that this doesn't sound familiar. He says, praise be to you, Lord, the God of our Father, from everlasting to everlasting. Hallowed be your name. Your, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. It goes on. Give us this day our daily bread. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give thanks and praise your glorious name. It's almost as if these first century scribes wanted to remind us of the purpose of the entire prayer. Thy will thy kingdom, not my will, not my kingdom. Guys, you do not serve a gumball God. There is no pattern or prayer that can make this thing work, that you can make it do what you want it to do and get what it is that you want. Listen, your good and gracious heavenly Father that loves you, he knows you, he cares for you, he will come through for you in all of the things that you need. In fact, here's what I know. If you knew what God knows, you would pray for exactly what it is that God gives. 
There's 66 books in the entire Bible. This prayer is exactly 66 words. It's almost like it's the summation of the entire canon of Scripture. It's all here. So listen now. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be an actor on a stage. And whatever you do, don't reduce God to a gumball God. Let's stand and close in song.